this weekend, our speaker is someone we know and love who's returned to endure the remit. <sighs> Hold on, can I, can I try something different here? I mean, this, you, got, you guys are kind of in my head. I feel a little uncomp with all this. I've never, never really done a voiceover before, so I'm kind of a little nervous here, a little bit, but I just need to kind of get into it a little. Me, 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 la, 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 la. Okay, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, this weekend, our speaker is someone we know and love who's returned to endure the remaining weeks of summer heat with us. He spent the last 12 weeks tirelessly working on his new book that will be published soon, and just a little time for fun along the way. He's been our pastor for almost 10 years now, and we're so glad to have him home. He's 10, he's rested, and he's ready. Please join us in welcoming back our pastor and future published author, Jamie Rasmussen. I'm back now, and those shenanigans stop next week, so. It's <laughs> so embarrassing. I, Neil is, he's crazy, he really is, and, and, he, and he's crazy behind the scenes. You know, we're doing a, uh, a thing for the staff tomorrow with the Eclipse, and uh, we're handing out special glasses, and we're uh, meeting at about 10.15 out in the courtyard here, and so they sent an email out about that, and so Neil responds to the entire staff. He says, um, is this an all-hands-on-deck event? Does this count toward our hours? If we don't go out, can we bank the hours? If we get injured, will it be considered a church-sanctioned event? Will anybody be speaking at this, you know, to justify it spiritually in some way? I think something on the end times would be appropriate. And then he says, lastly, can we invite a friend? And, uh, you know, our, our HR person, she said, I don't even know how to respond to that. And, it's, a, it's really good to be back. I, uh, I, I've been gone for three months, and I have never, ever done that uh, in almost 30 years of pastoring. I, I pastored four churches. It'll be 10 years this fall here at Scottsdale Bible, and I've never even dreamed of taking that much time away. If you're new here, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes talking with our congregation, you guys, uh, on a personal level about this last summer. Uh, so we'll get to the, to the word in a minute. But, you know, I, uh, I took three months, as many of you know, because the elders graciously uh, gave me six additional weeks in, in uh, addition to four weeks vacation and two weeks of study that I get every summer. They gave me six additional weeks to work on this book uh, for Baker Bookhouse that I've been uh, working on for the last uh, year or so. And uh, it really was productive. I, I finished the book about the end of July, and no, the end of June, and then spent most of July working with Baker on the edits and all of that. And literally Thursday, just, just three days ago, I got an email from Baker saying that they have finally, they, call, they now call it what, it's called an acceptable manuscript, meaning that they have received it for publication and I have no more work to do on it. And uh, the book, I, I like the title. When I left, you guys might remember the book was based on a series I did here two years ago uh, on attitude, how to think. And one verse in the Bible, Philippians 4.8, you guys remember that verse? You know, finally, brothers, uh, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, uh, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then verse 9 says, and the God of peace will be with you. It's an amazing process. And so the, the chief editorial director, Baker, was going to call a book, Don't Settle. 
And, uh, you know, what do I know? I mean, I'm, I'm just a dumb pastor, so the title's in their hands. And they, they uh, changed it in the middle of the summer, and my wife's glad they did because she didn't like that title. And, and I love the title they've come up with. They're going to call the book How Joyful People Think. You like that? How Joyful People Think. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think that that is more fitting of where the book is. Uh, Schrader, when I told him that, he said, well, the only problem is it doesn't fit you. But other than that... <laughs> I said, well, I'm not going to write a book like how depressed people feel. I said, that wouldn't sell. So, you know, I, but I, I'm more joyful than I let on. And, and uh, so here's the, the bummer, though, is that I'd never published with a name publisher. It'll come out uh, next August is when they're releasing it. So, like, I might not be alive next August, but I, I, I think we'll all celebrate then. I would ask you to pray uh, over the next year for it. Uh, you know, this is not a, not a money deal at all. It's a, it's a ministry and something to... Uh, sort of use what's happened here to affect the kingdom uh, outside of here. And I'm hoping that God uses it that way. I rested over the summer. I relaxed. I, I researched and got ready for this fall and the preaching calendar for next year, which was a huge one of my goals. And every Sunday, every Sunday, I dialed into this place to stay connected. And I got to tell you, not all of you agree, but most of you do. You were treated to some amazing teachers of the Word of God. Amen? You really were. I, uh, I mean, and, and, and just so you know, I think you know this, that wasn't like by accident. We didn't like, you know, just invite anybody. We, we very much prayed and, and targeted uh, men that we felt would uh, fit this place. Uh, Brian Loritz, Carl Clausen, my mentor, Kevin Butcher, Kimmel, Daryl, Schrader. I mean, these were all people that, that we chose uh, by design, and, and it worked. I think the Lord honored that. I got to tell you, the treat for me was the last two Sundays in hearing Rustin share the Word of God with all of us. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I knew Rustin when, if you were here last week hearing his story, I knew him when he was that drunk doing dent repair, you know, and, and to see where he has come from and what God has done in his life and the gift that he has now to handle the word of God and to teach it, uh, at least for me, was, was very powerful. And, and we're gonna see more of him uh, uh, next year as we go on, uh, Lord willing, because I, I believe he has a, a real gift in teaching the word of God. And I'm excited to see how the Lord uses him. Well, I'm going to pray right now uh, and uh, for our, the word. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of a different prayer today. Um, I'm grieved like you guys at what a mess our country is in. Amen? I mean, it's just a mess. And uh, the level of hatred and, uh, and confusion and, 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 and secularism and all of that, we've seen it coming for a long time. But every time I think it's coming to a head, it comes to more of a head. And, uh, and what's happening across our country now just grieves the heart of God. And I'd like to uh, include a special prayer that I hope all of you will pray with me right now. Uh, just agree with me in prayer uh, together as a church and maybe God will move in this land that we love. So let's bow and pray right now. Father, most of us read the news, we uh, watch the news, we, we hear about things, and Lord, the things that we hear grieve our heart as we know they grieve your heart. Uh, there's confusion, there's anger, there's hatred, God, uh, of people who think they are better than other people going on in our country, and it goes against everything that the gospel of Jesus is about. Things like truth and grace and love and forgiveness and hope, all the things that we talk about here in this place. And God, there's many of us here as well that 
really hope for revival and for healing for our country, for those who are oppressed, for those who are seen as different, for those who aren't loved, and for those who, who feel so marginalized in our culture. And God, I pray that as you convict our hearts, as you continue to draw us to the truth of who you are, that God, as we're going to talk about more this fall, that that would infect the culture around us, Lord, even this nation that we love. And I pray, God, that you would mobilize the some 100 million people, more than that, that claim the name of Jesus in our culture. And God, may the gospel go out and do its healing work. God, I pray that you will bring revival to our nation. I pray, God, that you would bring conviction and repentance and the things that are befitting of your word and your spirit to those in our nation. And Lord, may we all do our part in aiding that. Lord, may there be no bigotry, may there be no hatred uh, that comes ever out of this place. God, may you make this place a safe place of grace and of healing, of brokenness and of truth, all focusing on Jesus. Bless our time in the word now, Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. And I hope we can all say together, amen. amen. I wanna ask you a question that I've uh, asked in some other ways before, but it's a question I really want you to park on and think about today because it's a very, very important question that deserves a really well thought out answer and it's this, and it's core to our experience, and that is why is it that the most painful and difficult times of our lives are also the times that when we look back on them produce the most growth? Have you ever thought about that in your life? Almost every one of us have experienced this. Almost every one of us could tell stories about this reality, but it really is a conundrum. It really is confusing when you think about it. Why is it that the most difficult, painful, dark times in our lives in which we think God is absent and people have left us and it couldn't get any worse, that many times we look back on those and realize that God used them to produce growth and depth and even finding him in the process. How in the world does that work? Why would it work that way? Uh, Rustin shared last week, as many of you heard, his story and how, you know, six, seven years ago, he was just mired in alcoholism and drunkenness and it was ruining his life and his family. And so then he repented and came back to the Lord. And then he decided to do a career shift and come into, you know, the ministry. And he got awarded a minister in training position, which is really hard to get here at Scottsdale Bible Church. We have people apply from all over the nation for this. And he gets it, but the only condition is you have to be in seminary to get it because you got to have further training. And then he gets rejected by Phoenix Seminary, of which I sit on the board, by the way. And he gets rejected by them. And, and, and you know, all this confusion is reigning and God was doing this, but not doing this. And now he's finding himself doing dent repair. Nothing wrong with dent repair. It just wasn't his dream. He's doing dent repair. And yet he, he said last week, he looks back on that time and as dark and confusing and frustrating as it was, God was up to something great. In fact, if he had not gone through that, he would not be the man that he is today. Back in the 1970s, there was a great baseball player. I mean, really great. Worked for a great team, the Cleveland Indians. His name was Andre Thornton. Some of you might remember him, you baseball fans. And Andre Thornton uh, was just a, a great baseball player, strong, a strong Christian. 
And one day in the 1970s, he was driving down I-77 with his wife and kids in their big van and they hit an ice patch and their van turned over and his wife and a couple of his kids died. It was a terrible tragedy. Made the national news, I mean, it was just awful. And over the next few years, he's trying to figure out what God is up to and he eventually would get remarried and have other kids. And, and, and shortly after all that, he wrote a book. The title said everything. The title of the book was Triumph, Born of Tragedy. Triumph, Born of Tragedy. He's saying the same thing, that you can go through some dark, painful, just awful things in this world, but in the hands of God, God wants to do something in those in which you look back and say, only God. And, and, and so the question becomes, how does that work? Why does it work? What do you and I need to learn about that? What, what's the takeaway from that for the rest of our lives? In, in, in the time remaining, I want to do two things with you. I want to give you a main point that I think many of us might intuitively know but I'm not sure how deeply we believe it. And my goal is that in 30 minutes, you're gonna walk out of here and Cactus and Venue and Chapel, you're gonna walk out of there deeply believing this. And then the second thing we're gonna do is unpack how this works and why it works and what it might mean for you and me for the rest of our lives. So here's your main point. It's a maxim that I have learned to live by, that I believe with every fiber in my being that has become also almost a best friend to me each and every day as a pastor and as a man of God. And it's this, that everyone in this world is wounded. We'll unpack that in a minute. Everyone is wounded, but not everyone is broken. And I'm going to submit to you that without brokenness, no one finds God. That woundedness is one thing, and we're going to unpack what that means in a second here. But brokenness is another thing, and because not everyone is broken, because some of you, even as confessed believers in Jesus, are not yet broken in your life, it is hindering your very walk with Almighty God. And it's why you feel naked and placid and empty and afraid and all the things that you feel. So, uh, let me take each of these two issues, woundedness and brokenness, and explain what I mean by each, and then we're gonna put them together and see why this is so potent and how this all applies. So first, what do we mean by the fact that everyone is wounded? Everyone is wounded. You know, folks, when I was growing up, maybe you had the same childhood I did. When I was growing up as a child, I don't think I believed that everyone was wounded. When I was growing up, I can still remember as a little guy uh, feeling very insecure and, you know, and not very knowledgeable and all the things that little kids feel. And I remember looking at adults, and maybe you did too, and I looked at adults and I thought, I can't wait to become an adult and get my act together. Anybody thought like that? I mean, I think it's how little children think naively. You look at adults and they seem to have everything together, or at least in my world they did. I mean, mom and dad loved each other. That was the old days where they never fought in front of the kids. When mom was going to therapy, she didn't call it therapy. She's going to the grocery store, so she hid that from us. And so my parents had the kind of life where everything looked great on the outside, yet I felt crummy on the inside, especially in junior high. And I remember thinking, I can't wait to become an adult and get my act together. And obviously, as an adult, you realize pretty quickly that most people don't have their act together, but that, that no man's land where you're learning that is very painful. I can remember being a young man in my early 20s, and I was on a holy hunt 
to try to find people who had found the secret to emotional and mental and physical balance, who never felt depressed, who never got anxious, who always seemed to stay connected to God, whose all their relationships would work. And I wanted to find that person and just have that person mentor me and I could learn from them. And to make long story short, everybody I found would eventually disappoint me. How about you? I mean, this is funny. Even my wife, Kim, I love Kim now more than ever. But when I first started dating Kim, I only had one goal. I wanted to find the most together woman I could find because most women were nuts in my mind. No offense. They were emotionally needy and clingy and insecure and they wanted things from me and I was rocking for the Lord. I'm like, I don't want any of that. And so I remember meeting Kim and I told her on our first date, don't get too excited. I don't know if this is going anywhere, you know? And, 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 and I said that to her. And, and about three months later, I thought this woman's got her act together. All right, let's get married. And, and she agreed. And about a year later, I was vastly disappointed in her. She's not nearly as together as I thought she was. I mean, she's, she's emotional and insecure and needy and all these things that I, I didn't want. I remember we were fighting about it one day and she said, yeah, but at least I'm not arrogant, selfish, and in denial. <laughs> she had a point. See, I wanted to find the non-wounded person in life. And here's something I have learned. Have you learned this yet? That doesn't exist. Every single person I meet, especially here in Scottsdale, y'all look so good on the outside. You're driving nice cars, you got nice clothes, you make a lot of dough, you're successful in your business, and God love you, I love you, because I get with you, and I just don't believe any of that anymore, and I start to probe just a little bit beneath the surface, and you know what comes out? Woundedness. You're wounded. Welcome to the club, just like everybody else. You live in a fallen world that's not your home, disconnected from God, in enmity, not just with those around you, but with the source of all evil, Satan himself, who is throwing darts at you every day. And you think you're not wounded? You think you can escape the effects of the fall? No way. In fact, if you're not convinced yet, very quickly, look at how the Bible uh, from four different vantage points tells us that everyone is wounded. First, just the fall that has happened to humanity wounds everyone. It's Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because, say these two words with me, all sinned. Boy, rich theology here, gang. We call this original sin. The fact that when Adam and Eve sinned, it started the ball rolling for all of humanity. And get this, the Bible says there's not been one person born since Adam and Eve who has lived a sinless life. From birth, every one of us make mistakes, make bad decisions, hurt other people. We're the recipients of other people's sin, as we're going to see in a second. I mean, it's just a mess And it's why we need a savior, it's why we need forgiveness, and it's why every one of us are wounded right from birth. If you're not convinced, look at the second vantage point that the Bible gives us, and you gotta own this one. Our own choices wound us, amen? Anybody here today made perfect decisions all of your life? Raise your hand and leave if you have done that, okay? (laughs) 
Because the rest of us don't relate to you. We've not experienced that. Here's what we've experienced. It's Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. If one sows to his own flesh, he from that flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, shall from that Holy Spirit reap eternal life. So it means that every time that you're doing good things that foster your walk with God, you're going to be great. But every time you stray just a little bit, just a little bit, you're going to have consequences for that. Many of us here today could tell stories of of awful decisions that we have made, choices that we have made over the years that still have consequences today. And we're wounded because of that. Join the crowd. Everybody in humanity is there. How about this one? If you're not convinced, this one should convince you, the pain of this world. Uh, Jesus said it this way, in the world you have tribulation. Uh, Interesting, this should actually be the NASB, um, wrong quotation here, it's my fault. Um, This is actually the NASB version, in the world you have tribulation. The ESV adds a word there that kind of confuses it. They have Jesus saying, in the world you will have tribulation. Almost makes it sound like in the future you're going to have it. That's not what Jesus meant. Jesus meant that right now, by living in a fallen world, even if you don't do anything wrong, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have pain. Why? Because other people are messed up around you. And other people are going to hurt you. A bad boss. A terrible marriage. A manipulative friend. A society that, as we prayed about, is all about hate and groups of people that think they're better than other groups of people. Those things wound us. We got a letter this week from a dear lady, an African-American lady in this church who has been deeply wounded by the racism going on in our culture. And as I read that, I almost was on the verge of tears just seeing this dear lady's pain. That's going on all around us. Many of us, if not all of us, have some sort of that, the kind of pain here today. And then lastly, the last source of pain for some of us, and the Bible affirms this, is what I call family of origin issues. Again, the Bible affirms this, Exodus 34, 7. It says that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. You know what that simply means in its fancy poetic language? It simply means that to the degree that parents aren't perfect, it's going to affect the kids. Anybody experienced that yet in their life? And again, you're not blaming parents. We've already established everybody's wounded. But the reality is, is if we think that we can shelter our stuff from our kids, that they're somehow not going to be affected by them at all, we're just dreaming. Kim and I realized this very early on in our marriage that our issues and our stuff and our woundedness, as hard as we tried, was going to affect our children. And this is a true story. We started a therapy fund when they were like three for them so that when they came and confronted us when they were 22, we could at least give them a check. And you laugh, but I've got a couple of my kids that have taken us up on that because I realized that certain things in me and certain things in Kim are, are gonna visit my kids. And again, it's not to blame me or Kim. We did the best we could. But, but it is a source of pain that even in the best families, all of us have. So add it all up. We're going to move on here in just a second. You got the fall. You got our own choices. You got the pain of this world. We got family of origin issues. This is why I say everyone is wounded. 
Nobody fools me anymore. I go to some really nice appointments as the pastor of this wonderful church, and I meet some really amazing people out here in culture. And when I go to these events, and they're all dressed up in their tux, and they're drinking nice champagne, and they got their best look on, I look right at them, and I think, this person's a mess. I promise you, this person's a mess. If I find out what's going on, they got some sort of pain in their life. And you're saying, why is all this important? Well, here's why it's important. Because as much as I believe everyone is wounded and that that makes us all human, the reality is not everyone is broken. And what's the difference? Everyone's wounded, but not everyone is broken. And without brokenness, we will never see the Lord. Now, in order to best understand this, I want, you to, take, I want to take you to some words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And this is a very short, very clear very simple, but quite often misunderstood saying of Jesus. It's found in the early stages of the Beatitudes called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And it's a passage that teaches us very clearly why and how brokenness, as distinct from woundedness, is so important for those of us who want to know God and Jesus on any rich level. And so here's the words of Jesus. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me repeat that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to notice with me three key things that build one upon the other in this saying of Jesus here. And the first is contained in that opening word, blessed. Let's park in front of that for a minute. Many of you know this, but the word blessed literally means to make happy or to be made happy. Not happy in some giddy, superficial sense, but happy in a joyful, deep, abiding sense. The word means to bring purpose and contentment to one's life. It's a very rich word in the original Greek and even flowing from the Hebrew, this idea of blessed, blessing in life, that which makes us happy and makes us centered. So, park for a second in front of this. Whatever Jesus is about to say after this is going to be tied to this blessing. And this is where it really gets nuts because what does Jesus say next? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I gotta tell you, when he first said this, could it have been more deflating for the original crowd to hear this? Think of how you use the word blessing today. You say this, blessed are those who have a really nice family. Blessed are those who have a great marriage. Blessed are those who have a good retirement. Blessed are those who have their health, because you don't have their health, you don't have anything. Blessed are those who live a long life. Blessed are those who have good relationships. Think of all the things Jesus could have said, blessed are. And what does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you gotta believe they were going, what? But blessed are the, the poor in spirit. And what does he mean by poor in spirit? Well, two words. Poor simply means to want, to have not, or to be in need. We all know this. We usually use it in light of money, but it means to not have something. And the word spirit, now watch this, refers to the internal condition or state of an individual. It's spirit with a small s. Large s would mean the Holy Spirit. 
Small s means your spirit, your internal condition, your emotions, your thoughts, and your will, the, the, the internal part of you. And so when you put this together, this little phrase, poor in spirit, literally means, now don't miss this, those who are sensible of their own wounded, empty condition. It simply refers to a person who is aware of what they don't have. It's a person who is aware of their fallen state, aware of their spiritual poverty, aware of their own woundedness. Unless you think I'm reading into that, as one commentator describes, he says this is a person who is broken, who feels that the dust is his or her right place. The great spiritual mystic, uh, San Pedro de Alcantara, says this concerning this person. He says, I hold them to be poor in spirit who are, say this word with me, broken in will. You see the tie-in going here. As you start to see that a person who is broken is a person not just who is wounded, but knows something about his or her own woundedness, who has allowed their woundedness to take them to a deeper, more open place to God. John Gill, one of the great spiritual writers and biblical commentators of the past, writes this concerning Matthew 5.3. Again, I'm not reading anything into it. This is the old-time commentators. He says, there are some who are sensible of it, their woundedness, who see their poverty and want, who freely acknowledge it, bewail it, and mourn over it. They are humbled for it and are, say this word again with me, broken under a sense of it, they have not denial of it. People listen. Everyone is wounded. It's what ties us to the rest of humanity. But not everyone is broken. Not everyone is poor in spirit, aware of their own destitute condition and allowing it to mold them and shape them. That's why Jesus starts off this way. And says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that third phrase pulls it all together. Now you're going to really understand it. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the broken, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now we're getting somewhere. Because what Jesus is saying here is he says, remember that blessing, blessed are the poor in spirit? He says that blessing that comes from being broken is all about these people finding and experiencing the fullness of God in their hearts and minds. A lot of Christians are confused by this, but that um, phrase, the kingdom of heaven, isn't just referring to the afterlife. Give me a head nod that y'all at least understand what I mean by that. A lot of people think the word kingdom, phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God means heaven, the afterlife. doesn't mean that. Watch this. It means the reign of heaven, that the fullness of heaven, certain aspects of heaven, God himself coming to earth and inhabiting the heart and the mind of a needy, broken believer in Jesus. And that starts to fill you up out of your brokenness. And we call it the kingdom of heaven because it's going to take you all the way to heaven someday. But it's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God starting now as Jesus prayed on earth as it is in heaven, starting now in the hearts and minds of those who are broken. And so it's a phrase talking about the life and activity of God coming to earth and being born in a person. That's the kingdom of heaven. 
And so when you put all this together, I hope what you're beginning to see is that it's through brokenness, this getting in touch and being aware of your own woundedness that allows a person to begin to experience God on any meaningful and intimate level. And people for years have said, well, golly, I mean, it sounds so dismal. I mean, how does that work? Well, I, again, I'm linear in my thinking, so this is the best way I can understand it. At least this is the way I've experienced it. Some of you men, dial into this one because this is your saving grace. When you experience brokenness, what's really happening is that you are getting in touch with your limitations. See, one of the greatest lies of Satan and one of the greatest lies of our culture today is that you can do anything you want. Is that true or not? I, I hope, and you guys have been watching way too much TV if you think that's true. The reality is most of us are a lot more limited than we think we, than we, than we realize we are. I'm not saying you're not gifted. I'm not saying you can't do things. Uh, but, but, but an obvious example would be is that even when I was younger, if I said, I wanna be a professional football player, you know, people would have said to me, uh, go into the ministry, do something different than that because I, I, I'm not limitless. I'm limited by the very nature of who I am. And yet there's times in life, and these are painful, where we run up to the brick wall of our limitations and we realize, and forget about vocation, we realize in our marriage, in our parenting, even in handling our own emotions like rage and anger and fear and depression, our own actions, we realize there comes a place where we can't seem to get control of those things anymore. And we're running right up against our limitations. And I ask you men to dial into this because here's what happens. When a man runs up against his limitations, ladies, you're gonna love this. And women do this too, but men are just so funny to watch when they do this. They always do two things. They try to fix them like crazy, and when they can't, they run. You ever seen a man do that? I mean, it's just hilarious. It's not funny, I guess, in some circumstances, but it's just so quintessential male. Is that you run up against your limitations and so you dig deep and I'm gonna fix this, I'm gonna overcome it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make something of this. And then you realize you can't. And so what many men do is that then they just jump out of the ring and they run. And it's tragic when it happens. Women do it too. But part of brokenness, and again, this is why I said when you're experiencing brokenness, here's what happens. You hit your limitations and you realize you can't fix and you choose not to run. And the only thing you have left is Jesus. It's a beautiful thing that happens. It's what happened to Rustin six years ago. It's what happened to Andre Thornton after the accident. As you can hear in a minute, it happens to me almost every day. That brokenness is born out of a sense of my limitations, a sense of my humanity, a sense of my woundedness and fallenness. And then when I choose not to fix, because I can't, it's beyond me, and not run, that the only one I have left is Jesus. And now he has me exactly where he wants me. I don't have time for this today, but I gotta tell you, I've seen more people overcome more things through this kind of brokenness than anything else. I have seen in serving four churches a person overcome alcoholism through brokenness. I've seen a person overcome a terrible marriage, a couple, through brokenness. I've seen people confront terrible family of origin issues, literal abuse, and confront them and face them head on and find healing through brokenness. I've seen people who have emotional and psychological issues that would baffle most psychologists find healing through brokenness. 
And just so we're clear, everything I just mentioned, those people have names. This is Paul, David, Fred, Jennifer, Kevin, Sandy, Don, all people from previous churches that I have served. I won't put any of you on the spot except for Rustin. All of you uh, are people that I've seen find healing and find God through brokenness. And I know what you're thinking right now. I, I mean, if I was in your shoes sitting here right now, maybe hearing this put this clearly for the first time, I'd be thinking, okay, Jamie, what I hear you saying is that I got to hit rock bottom, get to the dark place, lose everything, uh, you know, uh, and then from that, I might find God. That's what you're saying, right? Am I saying that yes or no? I'm really not. Some of you hear that, but maybe this will help. I, I learned probably about 20 years ago as I was dealing with my own brokenness that there is a, and I, I laugh at this, there's an easy way and a hard way to brokenness. You're going to like this, Gil. There's an easy way and a hard way to brokenness. The hard way to brokenness, and I, and I want to be careful I say this, but I, I love the fact she allowed us to use her, her story, is Doreen's story. The hard way to brokenness is to get a DUI, and then don't wake up, get a second DUI, and then dig your heels in even further, and then get a third DUI, and now that everything's about ready to fall apart, go, God, I need you. And here's how good he is. He's gonna respond to that, as he did with Doreen. And 95% of the pastoral care issues we deal with in this church week in and week out are of that nature. It's people who have dug their heels in, said, I'm gonna just do my own thing, even though I know better. I'm not gonna walk with God. I'm not gonna do life his way. I'm gonna do my own thing. And, and they do that, and God sends all these warning signals. Like, warning, Will Robinson, warning. He sends all these things, and, and, and they don't respond to that. And eventually, like the prodigal son, they find themselves in pig slop, eating the food that the pigs are eating, and then they go to church and say, help. And you know what happens there? God, who is so good, who loves you so much, meets you in that broken spot, and from the ashes of that tore-down life, he will start to build you up again. He's that good. That's the hard way to brokenness. And a lot of you have been there, a lot of us have been there, and it's gonna happen probably till the second coming. It's the way humanity tends to function, and God meets us in that. But there is an easy way to brokenness. You're saying, what's that? <laughs> The easy way to brokenness is to wake up every day and stop reading your own press releases. Stop believing the things about yourself that get you in trouble. Stop believing that you aren't that wounded. Stop believing that you are what you think you are and that you can do it on your own. Stop believing. These are just lies from the evil one. I told you guys this a thousand times. The secret to my spiritual life, if I have any, is that before my feet get out of bed, I thank God every morning for saving a pathetic sinner like me. And you sit there and go, yeah, but you're not all that bad. No, I'm really not. My life is better than most of yours. I'm really not all that bad. I'm serious. I wouldn't be your pastor if I was. I mean, if I was addicted to porn or alcohol or, you know, yelling at my wife and screaming at the neighbors and doing road rage and all that, you probably wouldn't want me as your pastor. So you're right. On the outside, my life's not all that bad. But as you're going to hear in a minute here, on the inside, <laughs> I know who I am. I know where I've come from. I know what I'm capable of and I know who has saved me. And because of that, I choose every day 
a path of brokenness. I choose to not believe my church when they say, oh, you're so wonderful, pastor. Well, maybe in one sense I am, but in another sense, I know better. Do you know why Tom Schrader is my favorite pastor? Because he's real. Tom didn't believe any of the crud people say about him. I'm not talking about the good crud. He knows better. He knows his need for a savior. He knows his woundedness. He knows his brokenness. Many pastors, many church people, let's face it, they're as fake as a $3 bill. We try to put on these fronts, put on these airs, which are so easy to do in Scottsdale. And the problem is God knows better. And until you know better, until you know, what you're really made of and the need you have for Jesus every moment of every day, you will never experience the brokenness that leads you to him. And again, if you refuse to admit that, and many of you do, I love you to death, but you do, I know it, I talk to you, you refuse to admit this, God in his great love and grace is probably gonna have to break you. And the good news is we'll be here for you when he does, but maybe we could all choose choose. A different road. I want to close by telling you a story um, of my summer that I, I, it's almost hard to communicate because it's so fresh and in me, but I did it last night. And, and, and this is funny. I always use Saturday night as a guinea pig. Like I tell them, hey, I'm going to tell the story. And if you guys don't respond, I'm not telling it Sunday morning. And, uh, and, and so last night I did that and I got enough feedback where they said, nah, give it a shot. So I'm going to tell you this story. And, uh, and, and, and it has to do with how I experienced God this summer. And the backdrop, again, I was gone for three months, and the backdrop to it, and this is very important for you to understand about my world, is that there is so much in my everyday life here as your pastor that drives me to Jesus. It's not bad. It's just that it's very different from your life. So, so here's a sample of some things in my week. I come on campus here Tuesday morning, Monday's my day off, and I usually take it, and I, I come on Tuesday morning, and my very first meeting is with 18 people from all the different campuses and venues, and it's all the creative arts people, and we evaluate and plan and pray about what happened in our worship environments, and it is a glorious time. And then from there, I read all my emails for an hour with my two pastoral assistants, and most of them are good, and, 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 and we respond, you know, the way God wants us to respond to the emails and phone calls that I get. Then I meet with our executive pastor, and we talk strategy over lunch for the church. And then every Tuesday, um, and I can't do this for everybody, but I, I visit the same person in his home for the last five years, a person whom I've known for 20 years, and he has a he had a terrible stroke and he's homebound and he's kind of depressed and so I visit him every Tuesday afternoon and I pray with him and it's a tender time. And by the time I get home Tuesday, everything I've done has driven me to Jesus. Then on Wednesdays, I have my all-staff soul care, I have executive leadership team meetings, I usually have lunch with a lay person, again, all things that drive me to the Lord. On Thursday, uh, three Thursday nights a week, I'm with the elders, so three Thursday nights a month, I'm with the elders. I usually reserved the very few pastoral care appointments I could do for Thursday, and then I, I start my sermon prep. And as many of you know, I, I, in good conscience, I can't do a sermon unless I'm like looking to God and saying, what don't we give and all this? I mean, it would just, I, I couldn't do that. And so Thursday, Friday, and Saturday morning are all spent kind of wrestling with God and what he wants me to say. And then I come here and preach uh, for a few hours every, every weekend. And I got a lot of things in between that. I got seminary board meetings, mission trips. I do some consulting on the side to help other people and churches and, and all that. But, but everything I do 
reminds me or pushes me toward Jesus. And I become very dependent on that. It's almost like a, just a little, every day I just wake up and I expect whatever's gonna happen. I can't even go most places without people reminding me who I am. I mean, I dare not ever like do something nasty on the freeway when somebody cuts me off because it could be one of you. And it happens, quite frankly, a lot. I was in Traverse City Airport, Traverse City, Michigan, like this small little regional airport. And I was talking to my daughter this summer and this gal comes up and goes, Pastor Jamie. And I was like, oh my gosh, what, what are you doing? You know, I find out that she's got some Bible, she's Traverse City. And I, I mean, that happens to me a lot in a good way. So now I want you to imagine my summer. I, I get to Traverse City for where we stayed all summer long, and um, for three months, I had no meetings, no elders, no pastoral care, no sermons or preparation, uh, no home visits, no board meetings, no mission trips. I had a book to write, but that's very different. And within a few weeks, I was starting to feel incredibly dry because everything that drives me to Jesus was missing. <laughs> Here's what made me laugh. I realized my life, my life had become very similar to your life, right? I mean, you guys don't have my life. It is very different than yours. You live a life in which there are very few things, I'm guessing, that drive you to Jesus. I mean, selling houses drive you to Jesus? Not really. I mean, does selling cars drive you to Jesus? I mean, you can try to find that, but it's not easy to do. And I found my life very similar to yours. And as I experienced that dryness, I thought, what do I need to do to kind of reignite my walk with God? So I, I started to read the Bible more. I thought, maybe that'll work. You know, so instead of the daily crouton, I, I did the daily bread, you know, and then the daily loaf. And I started to, to really read the Bible more. And um, you can only read so much Bible and it didn't seem to work. It's not magic. And I know the Bible pretty well. <laughs> and so I started to take more prayer walks, but I, I didn't even know what to talk to God about. And... Uh, I found that those things, as good as they were, weren't working. So I decided to read more books, you know, good theological books, like The Five Views of Inerrancy. What a great book, you know? And so I'm, I'm reading more theological books, and they're nice, but it's not really doing it. And it finally hit me that I'm focusing on the wrong things. And I went back to the days, the early days that I got saved. <laughs> Do you guys remember those days? And you know what drove me to God in those early days when I got saved? I'm going to cry at this. It was my desperate need for him. That's what it was. I, I just realized what a mess I was, what a sinner I was, how broken I was. And I didn't need sermons or elder meetings or pastoral care appointments or books or even quiet times, though I had them, to drive me to God. I woke up every day and I felt a deficit in my soul and I knew I needed him. And that drove me to God. And so this summer, I slowed down which I don't do very much, do very well here. And I looked inside. <laughs> you know what I realized? Boy, do I need him. I'm more angry than I realize. I'm more confused than I let on. I'm, I'm, I'm more anxious than I let others know. I'm, I'm just like you. I'm really good at covering up. And I realized when I looked inside at my woundedness that I really was more broken than I realized and that I desperately desperately need him. And so I wrote this two nights ago as I was working on my sermon. I, I said, I need him because my soul is a mess. Again, I want to be clear on that. I'm not addicted to porn. I, I don't abuse alcohol. I don't yell at my wife. I don't beat the dog. 
I, 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 don't, I don't rage on people around me. I, I don't do half the things that you guys do. I don't do those things. <laughs> but I can tell you right now that my soul is a mess. I need him because I'm sinful, selfish, self-reliant, and lost. Even as a Christian of 35 years, I'm a gnat's eyelash every day from doing my own thing. How about you? And then I realized very positively that I need him because <laughs> he is the only one who can fill the void and quench the thirst that I have. Not fully right now. It's not gonna come fully till heaven, but I get a taste of it now. But as long as I do my own thing, no taste, no quenching. And, and, and here's the bottom line, and with this we're gonna be done because we wanna sing a song here as one body. I, um, I realized, and you guys gotta pray for me, that if I come back to Scottsdale, <laughs> it's gonna be easy to fall back into those old patterns, right? I've already done it. I actually prayed more over the last 24 hours than I did a lot during the summer. Why? Because the sermon's coming up, and you gotta be prayed up for that, and I wanna make sure all of you get zapped by the Holy Spirit and things like that, and so I, I pray up and I pray for you, and and all of that, and that's, that's not bad, right? I mean, to give a head nod, that's good that I pray for you, right? But, but if I allow those things to drive me too much to God and don't allow my brokenness to drive me to him, then someday when all of that is gone, because I might retire someday, <laughs> that's why a lot of men don't do well in retirement, someday I wanna know that there's something between just me and God that drives me to him. And I'm telling you, I promise you, it's brokenness. And my prayer for every one of you is that you would be broken as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the ultimate end goal that you are after, and that is a dependence and a uniting with Jesus. God, you know that each and every one of us need Jesus so desperately each moment of each day. And so, God, I pray that as we each give thought to our own woundedness, to our own needs, to our own brokenness, because it will mean different things for different people, that God, you would bring us to a broken place where we can agree with Jesus in Matthew 5 that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May we worship you now as need-based people longing for more from our Savior. And it's in his name we pray, amen.